Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. I'm here today with Clint Chow of Moment Ventures, and uh, we will be speaking about the firm and Clint's background. Welcome, Clint, to the show. Thank you, Simone. I appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you here. So tell us a bit about yourself as well as the firm. Let's get to uh, get you introduced to our audience and get to know one another. Uh, absolutely. So uh, I've uh, been uh, investing in venture capital since 2005 and uh, had an opportunity to be a part of a venture capital firm before starting Moment called Formative Ventures. And then mm-hmm. uh, I launched Moment Ventures in 2013 with my partner, my new partner, Amar Hanafi, and the two of us have been investing together since then. Uh, before, okay. before becoming an investor, I was an entrepreneur and had uh, an opportunity to work in a number of technology startups. Um, more, most notably, I was involved as an early employee at a company called C-Cube in the 1990s, and yeah. uh, it was at C-Cube where we had an opportunity to help commercialize the MPEG video algorithm, if you will, and became a very successful company as a result. Mm -hmm. And many of the learnings that I I, uh, had from uh, from that experience, I try to bring onto the investing side, and that is most of my background is in the sales and marketing execution part of uh, companies, and uh, I've often felt that that's a skill set that helps entrepreneurs at the startup stage because in many cases, many of them have never gone through, you know, taking a zero revenue company into becoming a potential industry leader in their target space. Right. So I try, to, I try to bring whatever uh, guidance and experience that I can to uh, help them with that. Okay. And how big is the fund? What do you like to invest in? What's the investing focus? So Moment Ventures, uh, we are uh, an early-stage B2B-focused fund. We invest in the earliest stages of company formation. So uh, we typically like to get involved at the first institutional round of a company. So that can be seed. It could be, in some cases, Series A if they raise seed money in perhaps less traditional ways. Um, But we like to keep the spectrum quite wide because what we're – Uh, ultimately looking for. We're looking for interesting companies that could actually, uh, you know, disrupt many of the industries that they're targeting. And and, uh, early on, uh, they may raise little amounts of capital, but uh, uh, as they continue to grow, we know that, uh, you know, industry leaders will ultimately need lots of capital. And as a result of that, uh, our entry point is somewhat dependent on the stage of the company is when we first get involved with them. And what is your comfort zone? Do you like to invest in, you know, companies that already have product market fit or would you consider investing in companies that are at the concept stage still looking to develop the product? What's, what, how early do you go? Um, we actually can cover uh, both ends of that. Uh, I would say the main case is that entrepreneurs are usually able to build some version of their initial product uh, without much capital at all. And uh, so by the time we get involved with them, usually there's something generally working. Having said that, we have also invested in companies 
at uh, formation stage. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah. we recently made an investment in the company uh, on the very first day of the company's formation. All so, right. uh, and, and that usually comes when we know the entrepreneur in a, in a manner that uh, you know, gives us the conviction and excitement in what they're doing. Okay. So double-click for us down into the B2B um, investments that you make. What uh, sectors of B2B are particularly interesting? Where do you have expertise? What do you like to invest in? Absolutely. So uh, first of all, when we say B2B, we're essentially looking for companies that sell their product or service to other businesses. Yes. And uh, our, our, our approach, we've actually created our own investment thesis that we call Reimagine Work. What we're looking mm -hmm. for are entrepreneurs that are able to bring the efficiencies of IT into other industries that had not previously been able to perhaps benefit from the efficiencies of IT and enable them to create new categories of services or new capabilities that were previously uh, not achievable. And uh, so what we're looking for are entrepreneurs that have an understanding of specific vertical industry domains and yep. then take IT, bring them in, and create new efficiencies that uh, you know, all of a sudden can change the way uh, work is done, how work is found, and how work is performed. And uh, as we've seen in the past couple of years, we've seen the onslaught of new categories of connected devices, connected machines, things yep. well beyond computers and phones. We're right. now starting to see, uh, as you know, uh, cars and drones and Everything, robots yeah. are, are all new categories of connected devices. So what we try to do is, you know, uh, we obviously everybody knows that these capabilities are now possible. What I think everybody's still questioning is, is how do you use these new technologies in industry and in enterprises? And uh, what we found is those entrepreneurs that are able to create a full solution uh, incorporating these new types of machines and bring them to particular industries that have an existing problem they're trying to solve. Uh, and in many cases, taking these connected devices and actually coupling them with the human beings that are actually working in those industries, something we call the empowered worker, and helping them become more efficient and more capable in getting their work done. And you know, at the end of the day, what we're looking for are solutions that if, if it's correct or if it works and it is a, 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 you know, it becomes a, you know, high velocity business opportunity in that industry, we'd mm -hmm. like to think that the company has an opportunity to run the table on the industry because, again, some of these industries like, uh, you know, healthcare or education or oil and gas, these industries for a hundred plus years have not been able to benefit from the efficiencies of IT. And only until maybe a few years ago could you make the general assumption that most workers or constituents in those industries have a connected device at their side at all times. Mm -hmm. So now that that's the case, what can we do? What, what kind of services could we create to sort of change the game for these constituents in these industries? And um, you know, every day I, I'm amazed at the entrepreneurs that we get to meet because they have seen 
firsthand what's going on in their respective industry. And they've now been able to take uh, IT and create something quite clever to bring mm-hmm. to the market that could potentially change the game in the industry. Interesting. So there are two things, two nuggets that I heard in your description there. One is the notion of the vertical, and yes. the second is the notion of the connected device, and, and the combination of the two is where you are seeking innovation. Yes, I, and, and the derivative effect uh, uh, that is created when you have those kinds of connectivities in the industry. In other words, yeah. you know, just, let's take a trite example. Uh, you know, the ride-sharing industry became largely possible because it, it leveraged the fact that all of its users had smartphone technology at their side That's at right. all times. Yeah. Yeah. So now, if you, well, if I think you understand the, that. An even more interesting ex- uh, example on the vertical side is, you know, the the trends around vertical cloud, like a company like Viva, for example, is a very vertically um you know, driven venture that has done very well by addressing the workflow issues of that particular of the particular vertical, which is pharma and the whole biotech space. That's right. right? And the ni- and the nice thing about what they did was that they targeted a market that was, you know, hungry for this kind of solution and also big enough that you could build a lasting exactly high value exactly. company as a result. So, exactly. as, obviously, as as VCs, we have to look for and want to look for companies that can build lasting presence in their industry. So it's it's not enough to just create a business that has the connectivity, but then to actually build a real business on top of that where yeah. you know all constituents in the market can benefit from it and you can build a really big high value company as a result. What uh Clint is your geographical focus? So we largely focus our investments in in the US. Uh, I would say Two-thirds of the companies we've invested in thus far uh, are Mm California-based, and a third, but I think a growing uh, proportion of our investments are actually originating from outside of California. Okay. And and then many companies that we get involved with have what I would consider hybrid locations where they have some physical presence in the Bay Area for, uh, you know, expected reasons of having a business development outpost that could work with other technology companies for recruiting and for being able to raise money and what have you. Uh, yep. But also, you know, some, you know, many of them have a foot in another market where there's an opportunity to leverage the benefits of that area. Again, if we're investing in uh, oil and gas, a company, a technology company in the oil and gas space, for example, it might not make most sense for them to be based in the Bay Area, the one that right. uh, a com- company, company or something like that. Yeah, yeah com- the one company we're involved with called Validir is actually based out of Toronto, and uh-huh. uh, which, you know, as you know, Canada is is a oil-rich yes. country, lots of technology going on there, and so, um, so yeah, so we 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 think that's going to be a growing trend. Um, yeah, more and more we companies. see a ton of companies outside of the Bay Area. You know, given what we do and our global nature, and the other day there was a security company from Cape Town, South Africa was pitching me on wow. that round table. So it's a very, uh, it's very, very encouraging and very heartwarming actually to see how much the knowledge of what we used to do as kind of this cottage industry in Silicon Valley is spreading all over the world right now. Agreed. And, I, and you know, I think the one, 
the one cautionary tale we give to entrepreneurs if they are based in a, a different market is, is just to make sure that you can still uh, recruit easily, that talent uh, it can yeah. be found in the markets that you're in. And, you know, that can, be, that can be addressed in many cases. Many of these companies are based near universities that have, you know, talent eager to stay in town or stay in the area. And in many cases, you can actually perhaps corner the market on the talent in your market if uh, if you pl- if you play it right. Um, right. And so, yeah, we're 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 optimistic about uh, the continuing trends. And uh, what uh, trends do you see in your deal flow? So, if you look back on the last, let's say, 15 months, 2017, and the first quarter of 2018, what stands out? What are you uh, observing and synthesizing. So, uh, as I mentioned before, our, our, our overarching thesis uh, is what, something we call reimagine work. And the mm-hmm. way we look for companies reimagining work are, are primarily in three categories. One, as we touched on before, new, uh, new capabilities created by new digital connections, new devices, yes. what have you. Yeah. Uh, the second type of company we look for are companies that can create what we call new ways to work. In other words, creating technology such that an entirely new, different type of business model can be made possible to solve a particular problem in an industry. And uh, you know, as an example, we have, a, we have an investment in a company called Call9 in the healthcare space. The technology-centric company, well, what they've done is built a platform that uh, essentially, it helps to eliminate 911 calls uh, in nursing homes. And what they mm-hmm. did was created a business model that allowed nursing homes to have instantaneous access to ER doctors, uh, basically located around the country, and uh, connected via a telemedicine connection. And uh, they place uh, actually medical personnel in those nursing homes to act as communicators with the patients, as well as with the doctors in the cloud, if you will. And the technology, this new plumbing, if you will, based on technology, allows patients to be seen by, you know, qualified ER doctors, you know, within minutes. The whole purpose is to eliminate the need to, you know, take patients to the emergency room when they don't need to be taken to the emergency room. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I think I heard 70% of ER calls coming from the nursing homes are false alarms, mm-hmm. and many of them are not necessarily physically suited to be transported at, at a moment's notice just to see a doctor. So right. what Call9 did, and, and by the way, the, the founder of Call9 was an ER doctor, saw an opportunity to create a new type of service. He actually has uh, a great story in that he actually spent three months living in a nursing home to see and and actually observe the ongoings in the, in the facilities to understand mm-hmm. what kind of platform you needed to create to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to introduce to the market. And, um, you know, now we're finding that, uh, you know, patients uh, are, are able to get great medical care and, and doctors can determine with the severity of a, of a quote-unquote 911 incident in minutes rather than hours and uh, in, in those cases, they're able to prevent ambulance rolls, which saves, you know, patients lots of money, saves insurance companies lots of money, and the hospitals are less clogged with people waiting to see doctors. 
Mm. So what Call 9 does is created this brand new platform, never existed before, and they offer it to nursing homes and nursing home patients on a Mm -hmm. subscription basis so that they can get that kind of care. Very interesting. And so this goes back to that original thesis. If Call 9 is right, and we think they're getting some really great uh, early traction, um, then I think this could be fundamentally a new way to get medical, medical attention and medical care for yeah. a large you know, population, if you will. And so we'd like to think that if they're right, they can actually become a longstanding, sustainable, high-value company providing this capability. Um, this kind of thing exists across all these different markets. And so mm-hmm. that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the kinds yeah. of companies that, you know, have an understanding of the nuances of that industry, but then can take technology and say, you know what, I can solve, I can solve the problems where, you know, data gets clogged up or things just come to a grinding halt because of, you know, physical encumbrances that have existed in the industry for decades. And then we try to unclog those with this new type of, you know, digital plumbing, and then create yeah. a new service on top of it. Yeah. How big is uh, the fund? So our first fund is a small fund. It's a $10 million fund, and we launched that officially in 2015. And mm-hmm. um, we launched our second fund. Or actually, we did a first close on our second fund uh, late last year, and in the midst of uh, raising the rest of that, that's a $50 million fund. Okay. And so our, our initial investment in Fund 1 uh, averaged around 250k on our initial investment, and we reserve about half the fund for follow-ons. And mm-hmm. in the new fund, uh, we'll increase that uh, up to upwards of a million to a million and a quarter dollars on an initial investment with a similar reserve strategy. Okay. And um, do you position as a Seed fund, pre-seed fund, post-seed fund, pre-series A. So where do you, where in the spectrum are you positioning the fund? <laughs> um, we actually like to, you know, call our, our fund effort early stage, and we sort of deliberately like having that broad definition. I think, uh, you know, these new definitions of pre-seed and micro-seed and post-seed uh, are great, um, you know, to help entrepreneurs understand stages. But at the end of the day, what we're looking to get involved with are companies that, you know, are obviously building something groundbreaking that they need to be able to raise enough capital to prove out their, uh, prove out the technology and then prove out that the market is going to embrace that technology. And those two breakpoints, if you will, are natural places where I think follow-on fundraising opportunities exist. So what we like to do is get in on that first break point of opportunity where a company has some initial conviction on their strategy, on their technology, and they're in the process of validating that with the, you know, with the customer base that they're targeting. So and, you're not uh, necessitating that the uh, company has product market fit or paying customers and all that? Uh, no, we're not necessitating that. I think in many cases, entrepreneurs, you know, I love entrepreneurs. They're able to do a lot with very little. And I think uh, in many cases, these entrepreneurs are able to put something together to, to demonstrate to target customers the potential uh, or, the, or the capabilities of their offering. 
and uh, and they have the opportunity to iterate and, uh, and and morph their business to you know evolve their business to achieve true product market fit. Of course, at some point, they need to you know build an efficient selling engine so that uh, they can you know create repeatable sales opportunities in the marketplace. And that's really what we're trying to trying to ultimately look for is is can they build you know a, a repeatable process to sell their platform to customers in their industry and yeah. uh, you know ba- and based on what we're seeing I mean, again our fund is still young and, and early but based on what we've seen we've seen really good signs of really dis- disrupt disruption capable companies and, uh, and and we're excited about that yeah great so um, I would even say that what you described would in today's segmentation parlance probably be qualify would qualify as a pre-seed um, and seed fund is probably my uh, you know guess, and and that's great because that is the part of the ecosystem where there is really a shortage and people are if everybody looks for companies that have already crossed a million dollar annual revenue run rate, it becomes very difficult for entrepreneurs, right? Because it's not so easy. I mean, yes, entrepreneurs can do a lot with very little and we are big, big, big supporters and believers in bootstrapping and we're constantly right. coaching our entrepreneurs to bootstrap as much as possible. But but you also still, you know, it takes time then to bootstrap and you have to be very creative and so forth. So having, yeah, you know, yeah. having Actually, funds yeah. that are willing to work in that pre-seed stage without necessitating all these things already taken care of is helpful. And I think if in the next phase of the industry's evolution, if we can get a bit more momentum going in that pre-seed, pre-product market fit zone, that would actually help entrepreneurs, I think. So, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, it's a great point. I think, I think uh, the fact that we have so many different, um, you know, categories that we, we as an industry have created for ourselves I think it illustrates the fact that at the end of the day, it, you know, entrepreneurs are faced with a daunting challenge, right? They have to get yeah. their, prop, they have to get their startup on its feet, and then they have to be able to convince, you know, investors uh, downstream to be able to believe in the scalability of the business. The point yeah. at which a company forms, the, on day one of a company, all the way to the point where they're actually able to attract that kind of attention and money from the large Sandhill VC firms, if you will, um, is, you know, can take a, it, it's going to take as long as it needs to take, and it might go through several different phases. Um, I actually think entrepreneurs at this stage are looking for investors that have an understanding of that path and can yeah. help them sort of uh, figure out how to do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, far, far too often we see entrepreneurs raising too much money too quickly or not enough money, you know, uh, too late. <laughs> and they can make a lot of mistakes uh, because they run out of money. It's a very tricky to... equation to balance across all these Absolutely. different dimensions. Yeah. And How do you process? Tricky, um... also... Yeah, go on. Please. No, go I ahead. was going to say it's also tricky when entrepreneurs raise lots of early money from lots of different investors. It's a very so bad of, idea. Yeah, so one of the things we like to do is we like getting involved with these companies at their early stages and then become, you know, uh, uh, an influential investor with them and, and be able to 
help them get through that. It would be nice if they could, you know, build a, a seed round with fewer investors rather than more. Yeah. And how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? How does a seed investor mitigate the Series A gap? So that's a, it's a great question. It's clear, it's clear that, uh, you know, your traditional Series A investors have uh, raised the hurdle, if you will, on, you know, what qualifies as a viable investment for yes. that stage. Today's Series A so, is a Series B or a Series C from 10 years ago. <laughs> Well, again, yeah, it, we try not to get too caught up in the in the, the verbiage of what what stage it is or what letter it is, but the fact of the matter is, is these companies are being asked to do more with less, and uh, before you're ready to really scale your business, you you need to have, you know, the kind of performance that I think warrants that kind of attention, and that hurdle is going up, so. You know, uh, again, because we're focused primarily in B2B and most of our companies are focused on building a product or service that is sold to other businesses, um, you know, there's, there's a revenue, you know, metric and implication uh, even on day one, right? I mean, types of customers and the type of revenue that you get, the efficiency of your business, how easy is it to sell, uh, and what do the large influencing customers in your target industry, what are they doing? Are they embracing your technology? Um, you know, one interesting, uh, one interesting byproduct of what's going on, because we're seeing these companies uh, move into these other industries that have not had traditional, you know, concentration of tech startups, is that when companies actually start striking a nerve in those industries, we start seeing um, interesting outreach from some of the large incumbents in those industries. And that's mm-hmm. usually a good sign that you're you're sort of onto something, if you will. Onto something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean anything more than that maybe you've gotten their attention, and that could be a double-edged sword. But on that note, I think it's it's very interesting to see, you know, how entrepreneurs react to those kinds of uh, uh, those kinds of actions. And um, you know, we're firm believers that uh, you know, even though you know IPO windows seem to be opening up for great companies, and we're thrilled with that, but most exits. Their venture back companies are going to come via M&A. But I do believe that the M&A landscape is, is sort of the window is opening up to a different, you know, category of potential buyers, these traditional incumbents that, you know, they know. They know technology has, you know, is going to make an impact in their industry. I'm not exactly yeah. sure how that's going to Absolutely. happen. But I think Absolutely. there's a lot of intrigue out there. And so we try to help our entrepreneurs, you know, have a, a constant gauge on their, their progress in building their early business, progress in building the kinds of relationships in those new industries, in those industries. Uh, those, that can tell you a lot about how the company will, you know, eventually grow and, uh, and, and put themselves in position to raise, you know, follow-on rounds of, of capital. And, you know, so, you know, entrepreneurs need to be capital efficient. They just need to, they need to be very careful. This is exactly the question that I was going to ask you. It's a very good segue into my next question, which is, which mm-hmm. is we are in 2018, right? Lots yes. of stuff have already been built. And nowadays there aren't so many wide open opportunities for billion-dollar companies. But there are many niche opportunities. And the, and the vertical um, point that you're making is, is absolutely on dot and, and like, there's so many verticals and that there's so many workflows that can 
produce interesting companies, but some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital and sold for under $50 million, which is where bulk of the exits happen. Do you have appetite for these kinds types of investments? Um, so first of all, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that I think companies that are going after these opportunities need to raise small amounts of capital if possible and stay capital efficient while they're proving out their business. And, uh, and however, I, I do believe that if they're right, if they are starting to show an inflection in their business, there's really no escaping the fact that they will likely ultimately need to raise, you know, a good bit more money from, uh, from the market. And uh, so maybe capital efficient up front, but then when you're really trying to scale the business, I think it is wise to consider raising larger amounts of money to uh, continue your execution. But to your maybe, point. Maybe not, not right? Because not, some of these are getting acquired early also. So if you can build a company for less than $5 million and, and get acquired for less than $50 million or, you know, in that 40 to 50 range, that's not a bad uh, equation. Uh, it's absolutely true. I do believe that entrepreneurs on day one all feel that they're going after billion-dollar opportunities. But the Which reality, is kind of bullshit, the, the you know? reality is, is that as they, as they start building their business, you know, maybe the market is slow to embrace their technology. Maybe customers have other alternatives, or maybe the team is unable to execute to their plan. In those cases where it could potentially be difficult climbing as far as getting follow-on fundraising together, and, and an opportunity emerges where they can exit, um, you know, before they raise large amounts of money, by all means, I think that's, that's a very viable strategy. Not all companies. Well, I mean, we play, in our work, we place a lot of emphasis on TAM and, and really trying to get to precise bottom-up TAM analysis. And, and in doing so, one thing that I see, one behavior that I see constantly is uh, ignoring the segmentation aspects. It's like, you know, you can say that, oh, this applies to, you know, everybody and their mother in this segment, but that's not true. Often, you know, solutions are perfect for a sub-segment of the population that you think it applies to, and that's where it finds high-velocity adoption. But if you go outside of that segment, it doesn't have high-velocity, um, you know, expansion. So I think if that is the case, then you better be aware of that and better be aware of what your real TAM is versus overestimating the TAM. Sure. I mean, and that can act actually most, uh, most clear in the traditional IT market, right? And IT categories, uh, be it security or uh, you know, application monitoring or any of these industries, a lot of these startups, you know, initially create perhaps, you know, a white space opportunity not currently served by the general market, by the incumbents. And they have right. the, the, vi the vision to, once be successful, expand their presence by, you know, amassing more IT and developing new technologies to help spread and, and grow their TAM. But that doesn't always happen. And in, and, and in crowded markets where, you know, dozens and dozens of, of companies are, are seed funded um, and, uh, you know, everybody's targeting some, you know, niche space with the hopes of growing big. You can't grow more than one X of the TAM, right? And so right. if there are 10 companies going after that, you know, something has to give. Right. And um, now, having said that, in, the, in some of the markets that we look at, what's really interesting is that some of these companies, 
they're really actually in greenfield opportunities. I mean, like Call 9, we have a company in the education space called Swing Education that is helping companies, helping schools find and fulfill substitute teacher opportunities. Which, uh-huh. I mean, these kinds of things are just not currently being Well, that's exactly by. right. The niche workflows, and, and if you have deep domain knowledge of some sort that drives that kind of deep workflow uh, automation, that those are, those are very interesting niche opportunities. I, I love these kinds of businesses. Yeah, and if, if they're right, and you know, if the flywheel starts to turn, you know, uh, we think there's an opportunity for them to potentially you know, significantly grow their TAM because now you've got a technology platform that helps you know, the operations of that industry and there's lots of places where I think a com- these kinds of companies can go to extend their reach, growing their TAM. So, um, so in some cases, markets are really crowded with lots of different players. In some markets, it's completely greenfield. And I think, um, you know, in both cases, we, you know, we advise them to be cautious and conservative upfront with their cash. Uh, only, only really start getting more aggressive in your spend until, you know, once you actually know and have evidence uh, of good fit in the market and have customers bringing you into, you know, further opportunities and, uh, and raise money accordingly. And, and yeah, great. To, your, to your point, Shermana, there are cases where as they're going through that, there may be an opportunity to exit, you know, before having to raise large amounts of money, which, as you know, creates a different hurdle for them different to have to hurdle. overcome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, many of these entrepreneurs are in their early to mid-20s. You know, they're probably going to do five startups in their career, maybe more. So in the first one, you know, maybe that's not the one that ends up, you know, becoming the, you know, the billion-dollar outcome or, or beyond right. that. But they learn a ton, and, and uh, we want to find those entrepreneurs that have that desire and hunger to do that. Um, yeah. We actually have an interesting situation in that uh, the very first company we invested in, in Moment Ventures, uh, the CEO of the company uh, built a nice company and ended up selling it to Akamai about a, a year and a half ago. And, uh, and then he actually started a new company and became our first investment out of our second fund. So mm-hmm. We have an entrepreneur that's been part of both portfolios of two different companies. And uh, we love repeat entrepreneurs. We love when they actually, you know, can, can learn from their past experiences and well, the market is full of repeat entrepreneurs at the moment there is you know it's we are in 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 a mature cycle of technology so this has been going on now for many years so there are lots right. of entrepreneurs in the system terrific well clint that was an excellent conversation thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts and audience thank you for listening today we um, look forward to seeing some of you at our uh, weekly mentoring sessions, bring your projects, and we will uh, work on them together. Uh, Go to the website, 1mby1m.com, go to free public roundtables, look up the schedule and figure out when you can come or when you would like to come. And I look forward to meeting some of you there. Or if you're in the Bay Area, come uh, hang out with us at uh, the weekly rendezvous that we do at Cafe Boroni in Menlo Park. Um, So that's all for today, and we'll be back with another edition of the 1 Million by 1 Million podcast.